Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Frank Catalanato. Over his 14-year career, Frank played for the Tigers, Rangers, Blue Jays, Brewers, and Mets. He's also the author of Heart and Hustle, which you can find on Amazon.com. Frank, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Well, Frank, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. Oh, ever since I can remember, um, you know, my dad always took me out in the backyard and uh, to play ball, to have a catch, um, or, or to, to, to throw to me. Um, and um, he was a big Yankee fan, and I remember we would watch Yankee games every single night. And um, it was just a passion of his, and he kind of, kind of moved that passion on, on to me, passed it on to me, and I've always been a baseball fan. Were you playing other sports as a kid? Yes, I played a lot of sports. I played basketball, hockey, soccer, and, and also baseball. When did you realize that playing baseball professionally was actually a realistic possibility? I really didn't realize it until my senior year of high school that I might have the opportunity to play in the minor leagues. Uh, I had always dreamed about being a major league baseball player, and um, I was never the best player on my little league teams or my high school team. But um, late in my senior year of high school, I I really started to – turn the heads of, of, the, of the major league scouts. I, I really progressed, um, got much better during those last couple of months. And um, uh, a Detroit Tiger scout came up to me and said, you know, we're interested in you. The draft is next week. And, and they, um, they put me through a workout. And that was the first time I realized that I, I might get a chance to play professionally. And, it, and even at that, I knew it was still going to take some work before I got to the major leagues. And I wasn't sure if that was uh, necessarily going to be in the cards, but uh, at least I, I got to, to, to um, get the opportunity to, uh, to play professionally in the minor leagues. You were drafted by the Detroit Tigers in the 10th round of the 1992 draft. What was that day like for you? It was awesome. You know, I was nervous. I, I was told a few days before that, uh, be ready uh, for a phone call on Monday. Uh, and, and on Monday, they were just doing the top 10 rounds. So I thought the guy was crazy. I didn't think there was any chance I was going to get drafted in the top 10 rounds. And um, I came home after school and just waited for that phone call. And I remember th- there was a, a few phone calls and my mom answered it and they, um, one was my aunt, one was somebody else. And every time the phone rang, my heart raced. And finally the phone rang and it was a, a Detroit Tiger, um, executive. And they told me that I had been drafted in the 10th round and it was, I was thrilled. I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, I, um, you know, I called my dad immediately. He was at work and it was, it was just a very happy day. And, uh, it was a day that I would, I'll never forget because I was just, I was thrilled. So you get drafted, you're ready to start your professional career. What came next for you? Well, it was a, uh, it was a tough decision for me. I had a scholarship to Seton Hall and, um, I didn't know what to do. I mean, schooling was very important for myself and, and for my family. So, uh, we didn't know what the right decision was. And, you know, my dad, and mom were involved in the process. And, and my dad was leaning towards me signing professionally. Um, 
and my mom was leaning towards me going to school. So we were every single night we were weighing the pros and cons. And uh, finally, I realized that I may never get the op- this opportunity again to to live out my childhood dream of playing Major League Baseball. So I figured, you know, I should probably at least give it a shot. And once the Tigers came in with a clause that said, uh, if if you decide to quit professional baseball, uh, we'll help pay for some college, uh, um, so for you to go back to college. And th- that really was the, when we decided, when I decided that, uh, you know, I, I had to go ahead and give it a shot. So I signed professionally and, and off I was to rookie ball in Bristol, Virginia. You played in the minors for five plus seasons. Were you always confident that you would make the majors or did you ever think about quitting during that time? Yeah, there was several times that I thought about quitting. Um, I know, I remember when I showed up and it's funny, I thought that they were waiting my arrival uh, and and couldn't wait for Frank Catalanato to get there. And I showed up and uh, I remember, you know, I was, I was a second baseman. And I remember when I showed up and I saw the lineup, the second baseman um, that was there already, he was, uh, he was batting third, having a great year. He was hitting like 400 and I was thinking, wow, you know, they, they've got a guy that's doing pretty well. And I sat on the bench, and I didn't get to play very often. And um, I had to make the adjustment with the wood bat now. My whole life I had used the aluminum bat. The wood bat was very difficult for me, and uh, the lifestyle was different. I was an 18-year-old kid. I was off on my own now. Uh, I had to cook for myself. I had to uh, – I lived in my, you know, an apartment – I had to do my own laundry and pay my own bills and stuff like that. So it, it was it was difficult. I was away from home, away from my my friends and family. And um, I remember coming home that off season saying, "Dad, I think I screwed up. My friends are having a great time in college, and uh, I was pretty miserable." And um, I, we, we, my dad said, "Listen, give it one more shot. Go back and see if you can you can get acclimated to it." And sure enough, that next season I did. I went back started to feel a little more comfortable, played better, and, um, and, and continued to, to progress. But there were, there were times along the way that, um, uh, you know, with those long road trips and the, and the, tough, the tough times in the minor leagues that, that I just wanted to throw it all away and, and come back home and, and live like uh, the rest of my friends. So it was tough, but I'm glad that I, glad that I pushed through uh, and, uh, and wound up, you know, seeing it through and, and, and winding up making it to the major leagues later in, in my career. Tell me about the talent level in the minors and where you saw the biggest jump. Was it going from A to double A or double A to triple A? Where did you see the biggest jump? The biggest jump was between A and double A, I think. Um, that was the toughest one for me to get used to, I guess, because, you know, th- there were a lot of top prospects in double A, guys that, you know, pitchers that threw really hard. In AAA, you know, you have your veteran guys um, that, you know, have gotten some time in the major leagues maybe, and uh, it seemed like they separated the, the boys from the men in uh, from from single A to double A. And uh, I know my fr- I, I, I played two years of double A. My first year I was there, and it was a big adjustment for me getting used to the pitchers and uh, you know, what they threw. So for me, I would say that, you know, from single A to double A was the toughest jump. On September 3rd, 1997, you made your major league debut for the Tigers. Tell me about that day. 
it was awesome. You know, I was uh, excited to be called up, and I, I know I was very nervous. I got uh, I got to to get in there and and get a pinch hit at bat, and I wound up walking. But I remember my body was was shaking, and you know, I I just didn't want to embarrass myself and didn't want to screw up. But um, uh, you know, after I I, I got in the box and, and wound up seeing a few pitches. I uh, got a little more comfortable, and it was uh, again, it was a dream come true, and I was able to uh, to be in the major leagues, and, and it was it was something again that I would never forget, and it was awesome. Who calls you when you actually get promoted? I was in AAA, and uh, Gene Roof was our manager. After a game, he had called me in and uh, and just said, "Listen, Frank." Uh, there's three or four of you guys that are going uh, up tomorrow. You, you made it to the major leagues. Congratulations. You had a great season. And uh, it was pretty awesome. And, and I remember vividly something that I had always wanted to do was uh, be able to call my mom and dad and tell them that, that good news. So immediately I, I went home and got on the phone with them. And, and that phone call was, was pretty awesome to, to let them know that I had gotten called up to the show and, uh, you know, my dream had come true. I imagine when you're a rookie in the majors, you're kind of lost. Who helped you transition from being a minor leaguer to a major leaguer? Were there veterans on the Tigers that helped you out? Yeah, there were veterans. Uh, Bobby Higginson was uh, the guy that took me under his wing and really showed me the ropes. Um, I lived with him, and um, it was it was good because there were, uh, as a rookie, you seem lost. You don't know what you should do and shouldn't do. You don't want to step out of line. And Bobby was there for me, uh, not only showing me, you know, how to transition into Major League Baseball, but uh, also he was a left-handed hitter. So we would be able to go back after the game and talk, talk baseball, talk hitting, and, um, uh, you know, talk about the pitchers and what the pitchers, uh, you know, m- might be throwing us that day or w- what they threw us that night. So it was it was good to have Bobby, uh, you know, take me under his wing, and it made it a lot easier for me. Let's talk about hitting for a little bit. How much of hitting is guessing? Well, I, I learned pretty quickly that um, it, it's uh, there's a lot more to hitting than just seeing the ball or hitting the ball. Uh, and in the minor leagues, uh, that that's what I did. But once I got to the big leagues, I realized that you had to uh, become a little bit more of a guesser, or a little, or, or expect, um, you know, the different pitchers, pitchers from different pitchers. And and I, I had to really figure out what the pitchers' tendencies were, uh, what they would throw in certain counts, and. Um, instead of just seeing the ball and hitting the ball, I had to go up there with an idea of how this guy might want to throw me. So um, I know I uh, I became, uh, I don't necessarily want to say a guesser, but I became more of a um, uh, an intelligent type hitter and, and expected certain pitches in different counts. You know, now where I was, in the minor leagues, in a 1-0 count, I would always look for a fastball. Now there were times that I knew that, okay, in, in 1-0 count, this pitcher likes to throw a changeup, and then I would wind up sitting on uh, on certain pitchers in, in those certain counts. Tell me about how your approach changes at the plate when you're coming in as a pinch hitter rather than if you've been starting the game. It does change. Uh, I know 
uh, I learned in, in once I got to the major leagues, I had guys like Rick Jeffries, uh, Pete Incavelia, Dave Magadan that uh, told me as a pinch hitter, because they were doing it late in their career, as a pinch hitter, you have to go up there and be aggressive. Most of the time, especially in the American League, when you're pinch hitting, uh, it's usually the ninth inning, maybe eighth or ninth inning, when you're facing either their their nasty closer or uh, their good setup man uh, that has some nasty out pitches, maybe a split or, or a hard curveball. You don't want to have to see those pitches. So usually those guys want to get ahead with their good hard fastball. And then after that, that's when they're going to uh, start throwing their junk. It's a lot easier to hit a fastball than it is, you know, the, the off-speed pitches. So uh, they told me, go up there, be aggressive. You have to be ready to hit. Uh, don't ever get caught off guard when you're when you're in the dugout. Stay loose, be ready, know what the pitcher uh, what the pitcher has, and don't let that first good fastball get by. So I would go up there and I'd be ready to ready to hack right away. And uh, I was pretty successful as a pinch hitter, and I think that's why because of my aggressiveness uh, as opposed to kind of going up there and just uh, taking pitches. We often hear about pitchers tipping pitches. We're hearing that about Zach Wheeler right now. As a hitter, what are some tells you can see from a pitcher? What are you looking for before the ball is even thrown? Well, for me, I, I learned um, how to do that pretty well. Larry Parrish, um, who was my minor league hitting instructor, he helped me out with that. Also, Carlos Delgado and Alex Rodriguez helped me with that as well. But for me, uh, a lot of pitchers that throw change-ups, their glove uh, will change when they have their the ball in the glove. If it's a changeup, their glove will flare out and get a little bit wider. And if it's a fastball, their glove will stay tighter. Uh, that was something for me that I would look for. Um, also, certain pitchers set up come set with their glove in different spots for different pitches. Uh, I remember some pitcher pitchers on the changeup they would come a little bit higher than their belt and you'd be able to see a space between their belt and their glove. Whereas when they were throwing a fastball, they would be lower and you wouldn't be able to see that space between the glove and their, and their belt um, for some reason. So those are, those are two things that, um, that I saw for, for sure, especially the way they're the shape of their glove and, you know, if their glove was flared or not. Are you picking this up in the on deck circle? Yeah, I'm picking. Well, I'm picking this up on the on deck circle. Sometimes um, I'm picking it up in the dugout, but also, you know, we have we have the luxury of watching uh, video. And there were times I remember me and Alex Rodriguez, we would go into the video room before games, and just you know, for hours at a time, just watch the videos and watch the pictures and try to pick up some tendencies. Uh, and if you know that ahead of time you know, it makes it a lot easier and uh, you're able to tell the other guys on the team, hey, this guy flares his glove on the changeup and it's, it's tight on the fastball. And that way the whole team uh, has an idea. Every team has advanced scouts that scout upcoming opponents. What kind of information about opposing pitchers did you receive ahead of time? I received how they've been pitching in the recent past, you know, maybe their last couple of games. Uh, I thought that was pretty important because, you know, sometimes pitchers change if it's three months ago you know he, he might be uh you know three months ago he might have had a really good hard fastball and maybe he lost some velocity and uh you know in the in the recent past he's not throwing as hard i thought that was important i i thought the um patterns or the um 
the tendencies that the guy had as far as uh, counts. I would always look at the counts, what the guy liked to throw, 1 0, 2 0, I thought that was important. I would keep keep it in my head. If it was above 50% uh, that he liked to throw a change up in a 1 0 count, well, you could bet that when I went up there, I knew, okay, it's a 1 0 count. I'm going to sit on a change up here. So that was, that was pretty important to me um, as well. But uh, also the guy's pitches. You know, it might be a guy that I did, I never faced before, and I don't know exactly what to, to expect. Maybe we don't have any video on him because the guy's a, a young guy or a rookie and, and making, you know, his first start. Uh, I wanted to know, okay, what's his best pitch? Is his, what's his out pitch? Is his curveball his out pitch or his changeup? Uh, that way, if I got into a account maybe with two strikes, I knew what to what to expect. Trades are part of sports. I imagine being part of one is an odd experience. You were traded to the Rangers in 1999 in the deal that sent Juan Gonzalez to the Tigers. When did you first find out you were going to Texas? I, I remember I was at my mom and dad's house, and I got a phone call. Um, I believe it was in November, and um, it was it was a uh, it was actually the guy. It was the assistant general manager for the Tigers. He left a voicemail. I didn't even get to speak to him one-on-one. He left a voicemail and said, Frank, just wanted to let you know we traded you to the Texas Rangers. Thank you for everything you did. You've done for us and this, that, whatever. And I was devastated because here, you know, I had come up with the Tigers, drafted by the Tigers, played in the minor leagues for the Tigers, and then played in the big leagues for a few years with them. And, uh, you know, I felt like they were giving up on me. And uh, it was the first time that I really – uh, I was confused and was like, wait a minute, what, what's, what's happening now? And I, I, I really, I was upset. I mean, but then, I, you know, after thinking about it for a while, I had to change the way I thought. And I realized, well, you know what? Not, I can't look at it like the Tigers gave up on me or don't want me or don't think I'm good, but I've got to look at it like the Rangers want me. And this is a new chapter in my life. And uh, it actually wound up, uh, it wound up being really good because the Rangers, uh, you know, gave me an opportunity to play, and my career started to take off uh, from there. In Texas, in the summer, it can be a hundred degrees every day. How much does the heat like that affect you as a player? It affected. Uh, it affected us. It affected me. Uh, I know towards the end of the season, some of those games were really tough to tough to play in because you know you're looking, you're starting the game at seven o'clock, and you look up. And it's 103 degrees uh, at the start of the game. It really wears you down. Uh, but I, I remember really starting to feel it in, in August and, and September to where, you know, it was tough to get up for a game uh, just because, you know, the whole season, you're, even in April and May, you're, you know, you're, you're in that, those temperatures. So I always marveled at a guy like a Pudge Rodriguez who was behind the plate and caught 150, 160 games, whatever it is that he that he caught, uh, with all that gear on and stuff like that. But um, it, it definitely wears you down. In 2001, you had the best year of your career. You hit 330 and had an on-base percentage of 391. Tell me about that season. Uh, everything seemed to to come together for me. The the off season before 2001, I got uh, LASIK surgery. Uh, on my eyes, and I remember I was seeing very well. Um, I got an opportunity to play once Rusty Greer got hurt in the outfield, and um, it just seemed like it was one of those years where everything I hit seemed to find a hole. Uh, sometimes you need to get to get lucky in order to uh, 
to have a real good season like that. And, uh, you know, I feel like not only was I seeing the ball well, swinging the bat well, but even when I didn't, hit, uh, you know, swing the bat well, I was still sneaking in a hit or two uh, during during a game. And, uh, you know, I remember having a month of August where I think I, I don't know, I hit about 450, and, and I it was really tough to get me out. And sometimes you need that you need those streaks and and i went on long streaks during that season uh and it was you know something i i I wish i could uh feel more often you know that that feeling of just going up there and knowing every single night that hey i'm going to get at least two hits it's just a matter of you know whether i'm going to get that third or fourth hit. it's a great feeling and uh you know i'm i'm happy that i was able to experience that in in 2001 2001 was an interesting year for the Texas Rangers. During that offseason, they signed Alex Rodriguez to a 10-year, $250 million contract. What was A-Rod like as a teammate? I liked him as a teammate. I, I thought he was really good. He was he cared about his teammates. Um, he cared about winning. You know, The one thing that I always will tell people about Alex is he wanted to win more than anyone uh, on the team. And you know, if you screwed up during the game, whoever it was, he'd make sure he went over to him right away and just said, okay, this is what happened. This is what you should do the next time. And uh, it sh- that, that showed me that he cared and, and he wanted the other guys on the team to perform well so, so we could win. Um, and um, like I told you before, we would, we would meet just about every day in, in the video room, go over the pitchers. Uh, Alex was good at checking out whether a, a pitcher was tipping his pitcher, so he helped me with that. And, um, you know, obviously he's one of the best players ever to play the game, so it was sometimes it would be infectious when he was up there, you know, getting hits and driving in runs. It would help the, the other guys around him. Clubhouse chemistry is one of those things that analysts have a hard time quantifying. Tell me how important a good clubhouse is or how destructive a bad clubhouse can be. Well, it's so important for a good clubhouse, and and I've been in both uh, good ones and bad ones. Uh, You know, I've had we had a a bad one in uh, Toronto uh, when we had a couple of guys uh, that were cancers in the clubhouse, and and it was terrible because it seemed like we were talking about that every day with the media instead of talking about baseball. Um, But a a a good clubhouse and and good chemistry goes so far. Uh, it really does. And, and I've had those teams too, where guys are happy and guys can't wait to get to the ballpark, talk baseball, play the game. Uh, and, you know, we've seen with teams recently here, you know, the Marlins, uh, a few years ago, that, that looked like they were going to be an unbelievable team and they just didn't have that chemistry. Uh, the Blue Jays early in this year seemed like they didn't have chemistry, but they had unbelievable talent. Seems like they're starting to come together now. But sometimes it takes some time. You know, when you put a bunch of new guys together, it takes some time for the chemistry to really come together. And, um, I, I, you know, I think that's one thing that people don't realize. I mean, you can have all the talent in the world, but if guys aren't on the same page and playing uh, as one, you, you know, you're not going to win a lot of ball games. So chemistry is huge. You are listening to Frank Catalanato. Give him a follow on Twitter at FCAT27 and visit his website, frankcatalanato.com. Frank, you played your career in what's commonly referred to as the steroid era. Let's talk about PEDs for a little bit. When did you first start to hear about players using? Um, it was probably 
early 2000s, probably 2000, uh, 2000, 2001, 2002. Those years are the years that I remember, uh, you know, knowing that there were a couple of guys on the team that were using steroids. Now, I never thought that or ever knew that it was uh, bigger than maybe three or four guys on each team. Um, I, I feel like I had a pretty good pulse on what was going on in the clubhouse. So, you know, when a guy like Jose Canseco says 80% of guys in the league were doing it, I think that's, that's just ridiculous. But um, obviously there, there, it, it, it became a problem. Um, and uh, I think baseball has done a good job getting it out of the sport. Obviously you're always going to have some guys that are trying to, uh, uh, you know, trick the system or beat the system. And, uh, but yeah, but early 2000s is when I knew that it was around, it was in baseball and, um, it's unfortunate, but, uh, you know, like I said, I think baseball's on the right, right road now and hopefully it'll be out of the game for good. So when you were in the minors, did you get a sense that anyone was using? No, I never did. I never did. It wasn't until, you know, I was in the big leagues for uh, a few years before I, before I really heard about it and knew that this stuff was uh, was going on. But no, in the minor leagues, it was never really talked about. Uh, it wasn't even an option. Uh, you know, it, it like I said, it just kind of came about all in the, the late 90s or early 2000s for me. Was there a different culture regarding PED use in Texas? No, I, I don't necessarily think it was different. I mean, everyone, you know, there were... Like I said, I knew of a, a few guys that were doing it. Um, I know that we, you know, the Texas Rangers were kind of talked about for having a bunch of guys um, taking steroids. But, I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think it was any different in, in Texas than it was around the rest of the league. How do you think the steroid era affected you? I don't know. You know, sometimes I, I think about it and think, hey, if I would would have been doing this like some of these other guys, you know, could I have hit 25 homers a year? Could I have, you know, had a better career? And the, the answer is, is probably yes. Um, but I'm glad that, uh, that I, that I didn't because health wise, I'm happy right now that, you know, I'm healthy. And some of these other guys that abuse steroids might, uh, you know, might have, have some health issues, but yeah, you know, when you're playing and when you're seeing guys put up monster numbers and making, you know, all, you know, all this money, it is tempting. Uh, but it, it's something that uh, each guy has to look in the mirror and decide whether it's something that uh, they want to do. Were you ever tempted to use? Yeah, several times. Uh, I think all of us were. And, um, you know, there are times that, you know, guys come up to you or guys would come up to you and say, Hey, you know, why don't you use this? Or maybe you get injured and, um, the guy says, Hey, if you use this, this will, uh, help you heal quicker. So there were, there were plenty of times that myself and, and some of my teammates had conversations, um, and, and were tempted and said, you know, what do, what do you think? Should we do this? And obviously back then there weren't, you know, there weren't, guys getting caught and getting in trouble. So it was a lot more tempting to do it. But uh, again, like I said, the, the, each person had to, to weigh the options. And uh, there, was, there was research done on it. And for, for me, I, I just felt like there was 
too many health risks involved. So when you say people recommended that you use, were they other teammates? Were they coaches? Both? Who was recommending that you use? Not coaches. Um, uh, maybe uh, a teammate uh, or even a, uh, somebody outside of the game that might be a guy that you work out with at the gym during the off season. Uh, you know, that might come over to you uh, and say, hey, have you ever thought about this or that? And, you know, that's what some of these other guys are doing. So, you know, that's but no, never a coach. Frank, I want to ask you about some of your former teammates and contemporaries and get your impressions on them. Tell me a little bit about Pudge Rodriguez. Pudge was awesome watching him go out there uh, every day and catch. Obviously, he would shut down running games. Uh, I know when teams would come come to town or when, or when we would play a team, uh, no one was running. And, and, you know, to watch what he was able to do behind the dish and then also at the plate, was really impressive and he was a uh, you know a, a really a really good teammate so I, I enjoyed playing with him how about Raphael Palmero Raffi was a little bit of a different bird you know sometimes you never knew what you were going to get from him uh, I had a good relationship with him uh, again another guy that was pretty impressive to watch because I would watch him in batting practice and he would take balls that were a foot off the plate uh, away from him and just flick his wrists and, and hit it out to right field. So it was pretty impressive what he did. And uh, it was pretty shocking for me to find out uh, that he had two steroids because when you would see him in the clubhouse with his shirt off, he was never a muscly guy and never really a big guy or, you know, uh, so that was pretty surprising. But again, it was, it was nice to be able to play with somebody that put up the numbers that he did. Cause I know, uh, his numbers with 500, over 500 homers and, and over 3,000 hits, uh, not a lot of guys have done that. Nope, he's one of four to, to do both of those things. The others, of course, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, and Eddie Murray. I want to ask you about a guy you played with and against, Roy Halladay. The hardest worker I've ever, I've ever seen. Uh, he was a guy that was determined to be the best he possibly could. Uh, you never ever saw him sitting down playing cards in the clubhouse or or doing anything other than getting treatment, working out, pitching. He was always doing extra side work uh, out on the field with uh, pitching and with his mechanics. Uh, he was always doing his his jobs or his exercises. Uh, he he couldn't sit still. He was always doing something. And, um, you know, it was nice to be able to play with him because you knew every, every fifth day you were going to win a game or you had a pretty good shot to win the game. And he was basically a shutdown guy. So, um, but the one thing that, that, that I would always remember from him is, is his work ethic. That was, that was pretty impressive. Tell me about Carlos Delgado and his approach to hitting. His approach and my approach were a lot the same. Now, obviously he was a big home run hitter and I wasn't, but, um, I'm talking more about the mental part. We would get together. He kept the book on pitchers and, and so did I, uh, every pitcher that I faced, I would write, you know, the results of the at bat. I would write, um, exactly what the sequence of pitches were, uh, what I might want to look for next time I faced the guy. And, uh, if the guy tipped his pitches and Carlos did the same thing. So every, every day that we were in the lineup, we would go over, my book and his book, uh, we would kind of compare notes. And, um, you know, obviously, 
uh, he was an aggressive hitter, and, and I, I was the same thing. I liked going up there and getting, uh, you know, and being able to hit early in the count. You know, I never liked uh, getting too deep in the count, especially later on in the game. And, uh, you know, I watched his at-bats and watched how he approached the pitcher a lot, and uh, it, it, he was pretty impressive. I was there, you know, playing with him when he hit four homers, uh, in that game, and it was uh, one of the most impressive things I've ever seen in a baseball game. The pitcher you faced most often in your career was Mike Mussina. Tell me a bit about facing him. I loved facing him because uh, he was always around the plate. Um, I had a lot of success against him because I was comfortable. I was comfortable in the box. You know, I knew that he was going to give me a pitch to hit at some point. You know, some guys you go up there and you face, and a guy might be wild. You might have to worry about getting, you know, hitting the ribs or something like that. And, and with Messina, I never had to, uh, never felt that way. I felt like if I waited him out at, at some point, he'd give me a good pitch to hit. And, it, you know, my confidence level was high. Um, so that's why I was able to, uh, to have so much success against him. A guy you faced fairly often when he was dominating the American League was Pedro Martinez. Tell me about facing him. Hated facing him. He was, um, you know, especially in his prime, he had a, a good hard fastball at about 96. And then his changeup, he had the same exact uh, arm speed. And his changeup was like 80 miles an hour and or even less. And uh, it looked to me like the fastball was coming in because his arm speed was the same. And I'd be, and he'd screw me into the ground and I'd, um, you know, it would be a changeup and it would be so tough. And then I got to the point where I said, okay, I got to start sitting on the changeup, just looking for the changeup. And it seemed like he knew exactly what I was looking for. Whenever I was looking for the changeup, he would throw the fastball. Whenever I was looking for the fastball, he'd throw the changeup. But I think, you know, he was able to tell by my body language of how I took the pitch before, he knew what pitch I would be looking for uh, next. So he was someone that I, I did not like facing. Pedro was dominating the American League in a high run-scoring environment in a small park. What were people saying about him? What was the buzz about him in 99 and 2000? Oh, it was just how, you know, he could put place the ball wherever he wanted. You know, if he wanted to put it on the outside corner, that's where it was. Uh, he was able to set hitters up. Like I said, he, he always seemed to know. Uh, he, was always, he always seemed to be a step ahead of uh, the, uh, the hitters. And that's what guys would say. I mean, like I said, obviously the fastball and the changeup, the difference in in velocity was unbelievable, and his uh, and his arm arm speed was the same. So everyone basically had the same report on him. You know, he's he's dominating. He puts the ball wherever he wants, and his arm speed is the same on both pitches. You faced Tim Wakefield a lot in your career. Tell me about hitting a knuckleball. When I was uh, when I got to the big leagues, Larry Parrish, who was my minor league minor league hitting instructor. Uh, was up at the major league level as a hitting instructor as well. And he always told me uh, a little something, and, and it's pretty simple, but I would always remember it. He would always say, whenever facing a knuckleballer, see it high, let it fly, see it low, let it go. And basically, you know, it meant out of the, out of the pitcher's hand, if you see that ball high, like where it looks like it's going to be over your head, that's the one that you want to swing at because by the time it comes to the plate, it's going to drop into the strike zone. And the one that looks like it's coming in as a strike, 
by the time it gets to the plate, it's going to be low and, and probably in the dirt. And that's the one that a lot of guys swing at. So although, you know, it seems pretty simple, I, I, I would say that to myself every time I face a knuckleballer. Um, and he also said, be aggressive and try to hit the ball out front. You can't try to track it because if you track it, your eyes are going to jump all over the place and it'll be in the uh, catcher's mitt before uh, you, you hit it. So uh, that's, you know, I had some success against him. I liked facing knuckleballers because I was aggressive. I hit the ball out front and I, I really made myself see the ball high and you had to trick yourself. You had to say, you know, even though you think this ball is going to be over your head, this is the one you want to swing at in the strike zone. What does the knuckleball look like when it's coming out of the pitcher's hand? Uh, it's weird. It, it, you know, you see with the fastball, the ball seems to, it seems obviously tight. And, uh, you know, you don't see a, a lot of spin on it. But with the knuckleball, it's very wobbly. Um, you see it. And the, the toughest part, you know, you see it coming out as a big ball. And the toughest part about the knuckleball is a lot of times the pitcher uh, doesn't even know which way it's going to go. So sometimes it comes in and it, it moves, you know, to the outer part of the plate. And the next time the guy throws the, the pitch the same way and it comes in on you. So, you know, you, again, that's one of the reasons why you want to get it, hit it out front of the plate in the plate, because usually with the knuckleball, it moves the most right at the, right at the end as it's coming in the strike zone. A guy you never played with, but obviously was a important figure in the game at the time, Barry Bonds. What were players saying about him? Well, we were saying how he's superhuman. Uh, you know, we obviously, uh, I, I played against him and just to watch him hit was it was pretty awesome because there were times that we would face him and we wouldn't throw him a strike uh, all game long. And maybe he walked three or four times, you know, his first three or four at bats, he'd walk and no one would throw him a strike. And then maybe the pitcher later in the game in the ninth inning or whatever, he meant to throw a ball off the plate and it just leaked over the plate. And one swing, you know, he'd hit it out of the ballpark and, and it would be like, this guy was waiting up there the whole time probably thinking, you know, they're not going to throw me a strike. And sure enough, one leaked over, and he was so focused. Um, it was amazing. So for me, and I know everyone says, you know, he's a, you know, he used steroids and he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. For me, he was so awesome that, I, you know, I think even without steroids, he, he still would have been a Hall of Famer. Yeah, and his numbers without steroids were already hall-worthy. He certainly enhanced his performance by using them. But it comes to a point where if your average major leaguer used steroids, and there were a lot of guys using steroids in the early 2000s, how many of them would have put up numbers like Barry Bonds? Exactly. His numbers were ridiculous. He had a few years that were just off the charts. Later in your career, you played with David Wright. Tell me about his approach. David was awesome. He was a great teammate. He was the leader of the team. And... Um, you know, he worked really hard. He was always in the cage. And, um, you know, he was a guy that the, the rest of the guys looked up to him. They, they expected him to lead the team. But uh, at the plate, he he's amazing. You know, he puts up numbers every single year. He um, uh, It seems like he's He's patient at the right time uh, when it's a clutch situation. He really picks out his pitch, and to be able to watch him play every day was uh, was pretty special. You played with David your last year in the majors. Tell me about realizing you're done, that you can no longer play. How does that come about? Yeah, it was it was rough. You know, I knew that my had my my skills had diminished. 
Uh, I had always wanted to play in New York uh, where I live, be able to, to commute, uh, sleep in my own bed. And when Omar Manaya asked me if, uh, you know, if I wanted to come to spring training with them, I, I took the opportunity. I knew it was the end of my career. I knew that if I didn't make the team, uh, I would be done. And I knew that if I did make the team and if I got released during that season, um, I would be done as well. I have four girls at home and I wanted to watch them grow up. So, um, it was, it was disappointing. You know, I knew that it was, it was going to come. I was happy that I was, that I made the team. I was able to, uh, to play in New York because it was something I always wanted to do, but, um, it was tough coming to grips with it because I had done it, you know, obviously since I was 18 years old, I, I signed with the Tigers. I played professionally and it was all I knew. So, uh, it was, it was a very difficult moment when I got called into the office. I, I had tears in my eyes, uh, not because I had been released, but because I knew that this was the end. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was one of the most difficult things for me, but uh, again, I, I would not have, you know, I was very fortunate and blessed to be able to, to have the career that I did. So I was, uh, I was happy about that. You'd been playing baseball your whole life. It was something that you were working for and working towards and continually trying to improve when you were in the majors and then it's over. How do you come to grips with baseball no longer being part of your day-to-day life? Well, it's tough. You know, when you have a family and uh, it makes it a little bit easier uh, being home and being able to go to, to my daughter's uh, softball games and basketball, volleyball, dance, stuff like that makes it a lot easier. But there are times that, you know, you're watching a game on TV and you're like, wow, you know, I, I missed this. I missed that one-on-one competition between the pitcher and hitter, and I'll never get that. Uh, feeling again when it's the ninth inning uh, at Yankee Stadium and I'm up against Mariano Rivera and the fans are going crazy and uh, you'll never get that adrenaline rush. So it's it's tough, but uh, I try to stay around the game as much as possible. Um, you know, the thing I also miss is the camaraderie with the guys. That's another thing I'll, I'll never get. Um, so it's not easy, but uh, obviously every major league player is going to go through it at some point in their, in their career or some point in their life. And, um, like I said, having things to do here at home makes it, makes it much easier. Frank, tell me about your foundation and its upcoming annual golf event. The Frank Catalanato foundation helps support the vascular birthmark foundation. And, uh, in when my oldest daughter was born in 1999, she had a vascular birthmark on her nose called a hemangioma. We went to the local doctors here on Long Island, and uh, none of them really knew what to do with it. They gave her some uh, steroids, prednisone, and um, it got worse. It got more red, and we kind of we really didn't know which way to turn. When I got to when I was traded to Texas, we met a lady there by the name of Linda Shannon, who's the head of the Vascular Birthmark Foundation, and she told us that there are doctors that can perform laser surgeries and, and take care of the, the vascular birthmark. So that's what we did. My, my daughter had three laser surgeries and one reconstructive surgery. And she was, um, you know, now you can't even tell that she ever had a birthmark. And we felt, you know, compelled to help out the Vascular Birthmark Foundation. We helped raise money for them. We helped promote awareness as well. And uh, we've been doing that ever since. 2001, we have a annual golf outing here on Long Island at Cold Spring Country Club. This year it's on August 5th, 
And uh, the first two years, it was great. We raised a lot of money, and uh, it, we're really looking forward to, uh, to this next one, August 5th. You've been listening to Frank Catalanato. Frank is a former major leaguer and the author of Heart and Hustle. You can give him a follow on Twitter at FCAT27 and check out his website, frankcatalanato.com. Frank, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. All right. Thanks a lot, Ross.